Good morning, everyone. If we, as we return to our seats, we're going to go ahead and stand for our scripture reading this morning, found in Mark 11, verses 12 through 33. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one eat ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe what, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really, not a pro was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello, everybody. It is good being back with uh, many familiar faces, some new faces, and if you have children, all of their faces look new because in the past year and a half, the, all of them have skyrocketed. They all look extremely different, but it's good to see uh, families growing and, and new faces joining in at Sojourn. I regret it taking so long to get back here. We've been busy at work in Manassas, but it's a real joy to, to be back here and to see what God is doing and to sing with you all this morning. Um, as a church around last September, we began preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And so I thought we'd just bring a little bit about what we've been focusing on in Manassas at New City here to sojourn. Um, to give you just a little bit of context about the Gospel of Mark, this is a historical account 
about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, this is an eyewitness account where Mark gathered uh, what happened in Jesus' life and recorded it for us so that we could understand. And one of the ways that Mark structured the gospel that he written about Jesus' life, or one way that you can kind of break it up, is in terms of conflict. So there are three main conflicts that take place in Mark's gospel. The first several chapters, what you see happening is Jesus kind of in conflict with the fallen and broken world. So he's, he's in conflict against demonic powers and against illness and leprosy and even the, the world and the, and the calming of the storm. And as you move into chapter 8, Jesus finds himself in conflict and constant disagreement actually with his disciples. They don't understand why he primarily came, and so he's constantly having to um, help them understand what his role as the Messiah would be. And then the last conflict, and actually the most dire one, which is where we'll find ourselves this morning and through the last few chapters of Mark's gospel, is a conflict with the religious leaders that uh, were leading the people of God in that day. And so what we're going to be looking at this morning is uh, some indictments that Jesus places on them that I think will be helpful for us to consider um, as, as a church family as well. So I'm going to pray one more time um, briefly, and then we will jump in uh, beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11. Lord, I pray right now that you would help me in my weakness to make much of Christ. I pray that you would guide these words and cause them to hit home to each individual in this room. I pray specifically, Lord, that this church and the lives within it and my own life, and the life of my family, and the life of my church, would not just be marked by going through the motions of religious activity, but rather we would come under your transforming word, and our lives would bear much fruit. I pray that as a result of this time, that you would cause the people of Sojourn Church to be filled with love, the fruits of joy, of peace, of gentleness, of faithfulness, of self-control. I pray that these fruits would come to bear in our midst as we consider these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a number of months ago, maybe two or three months ago, my family and I decided, mostly my wife, that we wanted to consume more produce, and so uh, we decided to plant uh, kind of a garden. We began a farming venture of our own. I know sometimes people close to the city think that all of Manassas is farmland. It's actually not. We're quite populated. The only farmland that I know of is my little vegetable garden that we formed in the, at the side of my house where we're growing tomatoes and cucumbers and things like that, and so uh, we, we put a lot of work into putting this thing together. I got on my phone. I scrolled through Amazon, the garden beds that were available there. Uh, I found one that would fit well right there. Uh, We had it shipped to the house in a neatly neatly packaged box. Uh, I actually had my wife construct it for me because she's actually better with tools than I am. Uh, She put it together. We had pre-fertilized dirt installed so that it would uh, have a high prospect of of, of yielding a good crop. We even had like half-grown plants installed, so you almost can't mess it up. So we didn't plant seeds. We had ones that someone had already done most of the work, and it was ready to go, and uh, I started pretty indifferent to this new gardening venture that we had uh, begun to engage in. Um, but after a while, I, I started to get a little bit excited. I, even if I didn't like squash or, or things like that, you can deep fry vegetables and, and it makes them uh, a lot more enjoyable. And so uh, I, I started going back to my garden shortly after it was planted, after I would get home from work and check and see if there was nothing there and there'd be nothing there. And so I would go the next day and I'd come back from work and I'd look at the tomato plants and nothing would be there. And I'd look at the squash plant and nothing would be there. And day after day, 
day, shortly after these plants were planted, I would go to see if any fruit had been produced on them, only to find that they were completely barren. And I was about to curse that whole garden in Jesus' name like he did with the fig tree in this story. But before I did that, I had in the back of my mind what some of you who are maybe a little more uh, attuned to gardening would have told me, Will, you've got to wait. You've got to be patient. Uh, you, you can't just expect to plant something in the next day. This isn't a microwave. This is, this is a slow process. It's going to take a little while for, for fruit to grow on these things. I needed to understand that in a proper season, you'll see the fruit of a plant that you planted go, grow about. So if I understand that, as a 21st century American that orders my garden beds off of Amazon, what is going on with Jesus in this passage where there is a fig tree that's not bearing any fruit on it, and it's not bearing any fruit on it because it says that it's not even in season with me. Look back in uh, verse uh, 13 of chapter 11. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for figs. I mean, shouldn't Jesus understand that, that it's not time yet? You have to be patient. You have to wait for the, the fruit to grow on this particular tree. Why is he cursing this poor, innocent little plant that it wasn't even in season to grow fruit yet? This is one of the more perplexing stories in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible, this is a story that's perplexed you for a while. It's perplexed biblical critics. It's caused many uh, to have serious concerns even about Jesus. One big particular biblical critic said that the story of the uh, cursed fig tree is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expanded in forcing a crop of figs to grow out of season. Fair point, I'd say. I mean, why didn't Jesus just use the supernatural power to cause a little bit of fruit to grow instead of cursing this fig tree so that it would wither away? Why is Jesus cursing this fruitless fig tree? And when we understand a little bit more about the fig tree itself, and then much more importantly, when we understand what Jesus is about to walk into, the fig tree begins to make a little bit more sense. You see, a fig tree, when it was about to be in season, would grow leaves on it that would tell you that fruit should be there. So here you have a fig tree that has the appearance of bearing fruit, but when Jesus went to it, he found nothing on it. And then when we continue to read in Mark's gospel, when Jesus goes into the temple, the very heart of God's people, what we realize is that the fig tree is not about the fig tree at all. The fig tree is not about there not being fruit on the tree. The fig tree is about Jesus going into the temple and finding that God's people are completely barren. The fig tree is a metaphor for fruitlessness amongst the people of God. God had redeemed the nation of Israel many years ago. He had placed them in the promised land. He had established the temple system that was a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, a place of prayer and communion with God that Jesus mentions later in the passage. But when Jesus enters into that place, the very heart of God's people, what he discovers is that they're completely barren. Joel, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 7 captures the, the metaphor of the fig tree and the role that it's supposed to play uh, in, in describing the state of God's people by saying in Micah 7, 1 and 2, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth 
and there is no one upright among mankind. The fig tree is about fruitlessness amongst God's people. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is, as 21st century, uh, as the people of God in 2018, what were the factors that contributed to barrenness amongst these people that might be found in our midst? My desire for you, especially as many of us kind of begin a new school year and kind of reset our lives a little bit, my desire for the people in this church is that your lives would bear fruit. And what we're going to consider this morning are the factors that were found in these people that can ultimately produce spiritual barrenness in our life. So I want to look at three factors that will produce fruitlessness amongst us as God's people and as a community. We're going to look at those factors. Before we do, I think it might be helpful to talk a little bit about what in the world do I mean by spiritual fruit, right? Like, if you were raised in church, maybe this is a familiar type of idea. If you don't have a church background, maybe that just sounds strange. When I talk about God's people bearing fruit, what exactly do I mean? Well, the idea of bearing fruit is a metaphor that's used from very early in the Bible all the way to the end. It's one of the predominant themes to describe our lives and to just give you a simple definition about what a fruitful life looks like, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. I would define it like this. A fruitful life is a life that is flourishing. A life that's flourishing under God's love and obedience to his word. Simply put, that's what a fruitful life looks like. A life that is flourishing under God's love and obedience to his words. One of the clearest places that the idea of fruitfulness is uh, explained to us is found in Psalms chapter 1. I know you guys spent a lot of time in the Psalms early this summer. Did anybody hit, hit Psalm 1? We got, okay, well, perfect. So you guys remember what it says then. This, this ties in perfectly in the providence of God. Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sitters, sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but rather this man, this, this fruitful man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. By virtue of his meditating on the law and having a deep concern with obedience to God's word and being sitting under, sitting under God's love, what happens in this person's life? Well, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In fact, all he does, he prospers. That's what a fruitful life looks like. And then to get even more specific, I'd love for you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 that gives us a pretty helpful picture about what a fruitful life looks like and what God's desire for us is as his people. What Paul is going to do here, starting in verse 19, is kind of contrast what I'll just call a barren life or a fruitless life with a life that that is bearing fruit, a life that that looks like what we described in Psalms chapter 1. So beginning in chapter 5 and verse 19, he's going to start by describing what a life that's barren looks like. Starting in verse 19, he says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. A barren life is described by someone who thinks that God's design for sexuality is totally archaic and irrelevant, throws all that off, and pursues sexuality in any way that they feel like it, thinking that that'll finally satisfy them when in fact they just need more and more and more. A barren life is categorized by impurity, sensuality, verse 20, idolatry. A barren life can't simply enjoy the gifts that God gives us as his people. The barren life takes the gifts that God gives us and turns them into our deepest treasures and, and puts all the weight of our love on them that we were never supposed to give them. It goes on to describe a barren life as one with sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, and fits of anger. A life that doesn't bear fruit or a life that's fruitless is characterized by relational chaos. Relationships are filled with envy, there's constant anger, there's constant disunity, Uh, relationships are quick to fall apart, that's what a barren life looks like. It'll go on to describe there being rivalries and dissension and division and envy and drunkenness. Uh, A barren life is unable to take the gifts that God has given, even of alcohol, and use them responsibly. Maybe to medicate pain or maybe to add a little bit of enjoyment to life because life is plain as it is. A barren life needs to use alcohol and abuse it, turning it to drunkenness drunkenness, and alcoholism. That's what a barren life looks like. What does a life that's fruitful look like, the Psalm 1 type of life? Well, Paul begins in Galatians 5 by describing it as this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. A a fruitful life is a life that's characterized by healthy affection. A a fruitful life has, has joy in it even when there's difficult circumstances, even when there's hard things going on. There's a sense of happiness, even a smile on the face of a fruitful person. A fruitful life is characterized by peace. It's not filled with constant worry and constant anxiety about what's next or constant worry about what people are thinking about them. There's just a sense of steadiness and peace and a life that's bearing fruit. There's patience There's kindness, there's goodness, there's faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We could spend a lot of time unpacking what these look like, but this is a broad picture of what a fruitful life is. A life that is flourishing under obedience to God's word and under his love. A life that is flourishing under God's love and obedience to his word. That's what a fruitful life looks like. Here's the question that you have to ask yourself this morning. From the list that Paul just outlined, Which one describes you? Does your life embody the fruitfulness that God intends for you as his people? Is your marked life marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Or is the earlier list the one that describes you? If this list doesn't describe you, some of the factors that brought about fruitlessness amongst the people in our story in Mark very well could be present in your life. So what is it then? Back to our initial question. What is it that produced barrenness amongst these people that we can leave from? The first one, as we turn in our Bibles back to Mark chapter 11, is this. What produced barrenness amongst the people of Israel in Jesus' day instead of spiritual fruit? The first thing was, They came to God's house for something besides God himself. They came to God's house for something besides God himself. What we just read earlier was the story, the famous story of the clearing of the temple. The temple was supposed to be a place that was uh, built and established for communion with God. If you look with me in verse 17, Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That was God's intention with building this, this dwelling place where he was dwelling and the people would come and meet with him was that there would be communion with him. What had happened instead was that it had been turned into a big commercial enterprise and lots of people were entering God's house for something besides God himself. 
the scenario was this. In that time, it was the time of the Passover, and so there would be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people packing into the city of Jerusalem that they could celebrate the Passover meal and so that they could offer sacrifices at the temple. Now, in order to do that, you had people coming from all over the world with different kinds of money and money that might not be accepted at the temple, and so they would need to change their money out for money that would be more acceptable, so there would be all kinds of banking booths. If you could just imagine as you walked into church this morning, before you walked in, just booth after booth after booth with people calling for your attention who can change your money and give you money that'll be acceptable when you enter into God's house. So there were people making a lot of money by exchanging this, this and, and turning a little bit of a profit for themselves. But another thing that was happening in this situation was for them to be able to offer the sacrifices that were needed for that time, they would need an animal. Now, one option would be they could take their uh, lamb named Fluffy all the way back from hundreds of miles away and carry it with them to the temple, or if they just brought some money with them, they could buy the lamb when they got there, and they wouldn't have to carry the animal all the way along. And so there were also people selling lots of animals, exchanging lots of money, and there was this big scene of just money being changed and uh, commerce being engaged in instead of people being there primarily for communion with God. The people of God were barren or fruitless because they came to God's house for something besides God himself. Now, we know we don't have physical temples anymore uh, today in, in, in for the church, but the people dwelling in this room, did you know you yourselves are the temple of the living God? When you gather together in this even school building, the temple of God is being formed. And while I might suggest that we're not seeking out financial gain like they were in those days, people come to church for all kinds of reasons besides primarily being communion with the living God. In fact, many of us have been discipled and trained to come looking for something else. I remember uh, I had an issue for, with my own situation. We, uh, at our church, in Manassas, New City Fellowship, we serve communion every week, just like Sojourn. I love that. Uh, just from my time here, that, I, that, that that became just kind of a part of my weekly rhythm. And so we do that. And we have the same communion cups that you guys have. And so uh, at our church, we, we rent a church building from a Universalist Unitarian congregation. And we've got to make sure we turn it back over to them in the way that we found it initially. And so one of the things we have to make sure we do in the job that I was tasked with that night was going through all the pews and making sure there was no little communion cups left over. Because of all the things we do, that's one of the things that probably weirds them out a little bit. And so we've got to make sure that we clear out all the communion cups. And so, uh, as I mentioned with the garden, I'm a little bit impatient. I'm always looking for a way to kind of make shortcuts and find a more expedient way to get things done. And so, instead of doing it myself, I get my kids to me and I say, hey, hey, uh, Caleb and Emily, for every communion cup you find sitting in the seats, I'll give you a quarter. And so, they're scurrying throughout the seats. And luckily, that night, everybody had thrown them away. And so, I didn't have to pay out anything. It was fine. Well, the next, like a couple weeks after that, my son finishes his Sunday school class, and as soon as service is over, he bolts out into the room and is scurrying around, collecting as many communion cups as he can. And he comes to me with his hands filled with communion cups so that he can make a big payout based on all of the communion cups that he gathered. And I thought to myself, just like Jesus said in this passage, oh no, I've made God's house into a den of thieves. <laughs> I've discipled my son into coming to God's house for something besides God himself. That was his primarily motiv primary motivation for being there that day. And again, while many of you haven't come to sojourn this dwelling place of God in order to gain, uh, gain money, many of us come for all kinds of other motives as the primary reason that we're here. Some of us come to God's house with a primary motive of simply being entertained right? Like we want a good inspiring thing that'll maybe make us laugh a little bit where we can feel good about ourselves and head out throughout the week. Some of us come into God's house because this is a great place to maybe get a little bit of social recognition, and that's the main, main reason that you come in. 
You can get recognition. You can maybe get a little bit of praise. Maybe some of us come into God's house. Rather than for us coming for communion with him, we simply want our kids to fall in line and be raised in church, and so that's the thing that drives us to come here. Others of you, just to be honest, you're here and you're single, and uh, while Jesus called it a house of prayer, perhaps you're thinking that this is a house to find a spouse. And while you may be doing that, that's great. I do, in fact, hope that you find a spouse in the context of a church. Uh, That should not be the primary reason that you gather here. Maybe you love Sojourn and you come here because there's great community. That's awesome. Maybe you come because this is a church that cares about sound doctrine. This is a church that cares about making disciples. This is a church that cares about reaching the city. Those are all wonderful things. They're not the primary thing. The primary reason we gather as God's people is for communion with the living God. Why did you come here today? Did you come to make new friends? Did you come out of routine? Or did you come to set every distraction in your life aside that you might sing to your God, hear from his word, commune with the saints, come around and participate in the the Lord's Supper? Did you come for some other reason than primarily coming for communion with God? If that becomes a, a, a regular habit in your life, I can guarantee what it will produce is fruitlessness for you. Some of you come to sojourn every week after a really difficult situation. Maybe it's at work, Maybe it's something going on with your family. Maybe it's something going on with your health. And you maybe feel a little bit because of those circumstances like your life is withering a little bit. It's hard to see a lot of spiritual fruit. This should be a time where you come and encounter the living God, where you set your phone aside, where you set everything happening in your life aside so that you can be in fellowship, in communion with God. That's where our lives find fruitfulness when we, when we come together for that reason. So what is it that produces barrenness amongst God's people? The first thing, coming to God's house for something besides God himself. The second thing, coming to God's house, harboring unforgiveness. Coming to God's house for something besides God. Secondly, coming, to God's, coming into God's presence, harboring unforgiveness. Uh, in verse 22, Jesus says some profound things about the fruitfulness of our prayers, the reality that we can actually pray to God and expect there to be real things that happen in return. Let me just read it back in verse 22. Jesus says, after Peter is amazed at what happened to the fig tree that withered away, have faith in God, and truly I tell you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he has said, says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What a promise that is. That our prayers aren't just us kind of offering vain words up to the sky, but that when we pray, God can hear our prayer and respond and there can be real fruit as a result in our world. What an incredible promise. But Jesus doesn't end the conversation about the fruitfulness of our prayers without pointing out something that can make our prayers and even our communion with God fruitless. He continues to say, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you. When we come into God's presence with prayer, and there's unforgiveness that's being harbored in in our heart, I like to think of it as bringing a massive elephant into the room. Do you know that expression? 
you bring an elephant into the room by there being something that you're kind of focused on, but there's actually a much bigger reality going on. I had an elephant in the room experience recently that I'd love for you to not tell my church about. Um, I was on vacation a week ago, and I was at my aunt's lake house, and I've just got to tell it really quick, but I uh, was playing with fireworks, which led to like basically the whole backyard catching on fire. The fire department came out. They, they dealt with it. It got under control, and my aunt and uncle, because of my carelessness with what was going on in that situation, could have responded in one of two ways. They could have been extremely angry, which they should have been, or they could have been extremely gracious, which they chose to be. They were just super gracious with me, so much so that my uncle walked in, and he didn't even want to address it. Like, half of his yard has been burned to the ground, and he's just, uh, just, just to, oh, what'd you, you guys do today? Did you do any swimming at the lake? Did you, did you catch anything there? Did, uh, what would you guys like to have for dinner? And I'm thinking, whoa, there's a, a really big deal that happened. I mean, I don't want you to crush me for it, but a little bit of dialogue would be helpful about this. Uh, when we come to God, in his presence, requesting things, but we're harboring unforgiveness. We're bringing something in that's really big that he's not going to talk about the thing we want to talk about, regardless of how big we may think it is, until we address that elephant. The reason we sometimes do so is maybe we just think unforgiveness isn't that big of a deal, but before God's sight, it is. And he says, I don't want to talk about anything else until we talk about that. How can we come to God week after week, day after day, failing him, falling short of him, doing the things we said we would never do again, and finding love, grace, and forgiveness every single time. And then when someone hurts us, someone offends us, we become unwilling to release that debt. This is so serious to Jesus that he even says that um, there's an inseparable link between the grace that you've received from God and the grace you're willing to extend to one another. He says, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. That's, there's a link between these two things, so much so that if we're unwilling to forgive those who have hurt us in our life, there's a good chance that we might not properly or we may, may never have experienced God's grace in our life in the first place. What produces barrenness amongst God's people? Coming into God's presence, coming to God's house for something besides God. Coming to God, harboring unforgiveness in our heart. The third thing that we can do to bring about barrenness in our life is come into God's presence, rejecting the authority of Jesus. Coming into God's presence, coming to God, rejecting the authority of of Jesus is if you look with me in verse 27, there's a conversation that goes on that's all centered on authority. It says, and they came to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you what authority I do these by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they held John that he really was a prophet. So they came to Jesus and they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The leaders of Israel, these, these fruitless people who are being um, symbolized in the picture of the fig tree, they, they come to Jesus, and Jesus is doing some pretty bold things, right? Like, Jesus is flipping tables over. Uh, Jesus is, is uh, making some pretty bold moves, and so they have a question that I think is a little bit reasonable. 
we'd like to see some credentials if you're just going to walk in here and start flipping things over, right? Like if someone came in sojourn and just started directing people and telling them what to do and, and, and rearranging things and you didn't know who they were or where they'd ever been from, you would want to know who gave them the authority to do that. They come to Jesus asking, who gave you this authority? This is a lot of things uh, that you're doing here. But what's behind their question is not real honesty wondering who gave him the authority to do that because they had already made up their mind. They wanted nothing to do with the authority of Jesus. They wanted Jesus off their backs. And so the question is simply trying to trap him. What their heart is really saying underneath the question of what are your credentials, what their heart is really saying is this. Who do you think you are to come in here and tell us how to order our lives? What gives you the right to step into uh, this scene, this moment, and reorder things and tell us what to do? Who gave you the authority over me. That's, that's the heart of their question. Jesus isn't going to play with it because Jesus responds with a question that shuts the whole thing down. John the Baptist was a prophet that preceded Jesus and who had a massive following in the nation of Israel, but even him the leaders of Israel rejected. And so the people, though, held him in very high regard, and so Jesus kind of traps him and says, well, where did John's authority come from? They gave him no answer because they knew at their, at their heart they really wouldn't care if there was a good answer. They simply wanted to reject the authority of Jesus. And listen to me. Their rejecting of Jesus' authority came with extremely dire consequences. Because what's going to follow in the years from co to come because of their rejection of Jesus is this fruitless temple, this kind of vain religious service that they're offering to God is going to wither to nothing just like the fig tree. The temple is going to be invaded by the Roman armies. It's going to be torn down and left in a pile of rubble. That pile of rubble still stands in Israel to this day. The Jews are going to be exiled from the land, and their entire religious system is going to wither to nothing. Why? Primarily because they rejected the authority of Jesus. And there's some of you in this room today who are doing the exact same thing. There's some of you who look to Jesus and look at his commands for your life and have a similar heart posture. Maybe you just ignore it altogether, or maybe you say, what gives you the right to try to tell me how to live my life? For some of you, you uh, certainly uh, love the Lord and you're, you're following after Jesus, but you reject the authority of Jesus over a particular area of your life. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you've heard before, not to store up treasures on earth, not to make your life about acquiring more money. You've heard maybe Jesus say that uh, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions, but if we were to look at the activity of your mind and your bank statements and just kind of what you are most passionate right now, the main thing that you're pursuing is more and more wealth, more and more things. That's an area of your life where you're not interested in the authority of Jesus. There's others of you with your sexuality, you don't understand why the Bible may say what it has to say about human sexuality, and so you turn that off, and, and maybe in the quiet places of your life where people don't even know about, you reject the authority of Jesus and how you go about your sexuality. There are others of you, I know college students are returning, and you find yourself at a real crossroads, honestly, especially some of you who are kind of new to Mason, and uh, maybe you were raised in church with a lot of rules, or you kind of went to youth group, and you're kind of at, honestly, a fork in the roads where you're now under all that, you're at school, and you've got to decide who's going to call the shots in your life. Is it going to be Jesus, or are you going to throw all that off and live it up like everybody else is doing, because you think that's where a fruitful and a happy and a joyful life is found, getting under authority, getting out from under authority and living as you please? Man, maybe it's even with subtle things with some of us with our children. 
Like, you know the importance of family worship. You know the importance of your, ch- your children being involved in the life of the church, but instead of engaging with that, you've got them with every possible extracurricular activity, and you're running around. Your life is crazy because you think that a fruitful life is found in the best of grades, every possible athletic experience, maybe in their performance musically, and that's an area where you're not really interested in the authority of Jesus. There may be some of you in this room where you've rejected uh, the authority of Jesus. And if that's you, wherever, whether you reject the authority of Jesus outright or at some particular area of your life, I want to plead with you as we prepare to close to consider, first of all, what happened to these people because they rejected Jesus. But even more specifically, if you reject the authority of Jesus, consider the word that you're rejecting just a little bit more. For so many of us, the word authority is about control and manipulation and restriction and taking away freedom. Do you know what the root of the word authority is, even in English? It's author. It's author. When you reject the authority of God, when you reject the authority of Jesus, you're rejecting the person who authored up the designs for your life in the first place. You're rejecting the one who knows how a life that's flourishing and fruitful is supposed to be lived. You're rejecting the the designs from the author himself. Jesus exercises his authority like an expert gardener. A gardener who's over their garden has full authority over what's growing there. But why do they use their authority? so that they can suck the life out of the plants. They use their authority so that they can create the conditions in which those plants can flourish and grow. Jesus exercises his authority over our lives that our lives might flourish, that our lives might not wither away, but they might bear much fruit. Let me ask you again, what characterizes your life this morning? Is your life characterized by fruitfulness, by love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Is your life ultimately spiritually barren? If that's you this morning, I want to urge you to return to Jesus, the one with all authority, the very author of life, and submit your life totally to him. Let me just tell you how committed Jesus is to seeing your life flourish. John chapter 12 says that, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is that talking about? That's talking about Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, to take on all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your regrets, all of the things that you've done wrong, all of the things that, all of the times that you've rejected God's authority in your life, and he died on that cross for you so that you might be made into a new person, transformed into a a brand new creature whose life is now flourishing. If your life feels like it's withering, I want to urge you to return to Jesus. He's so committed to your flourishing that he laid down his very life for you. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate communion, where we remember through the tangible elements, the bread that that symbolizes the body of Christ, the cup that symbolizes his blood, tangible elements that remind us that the author of life was willing to die on a cross for all the times we rejected his good and right authority. If you're a Christian and your life is submitted to the authority of Jesus, I want to invite you and I want to take the joy of participating in communion with you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're 
still figuring out what you believe about Jesus, or maybe you, you, you quite clearly know that you're not a Christian, and, and maybe for whatever reason you've gathered this morning, I'm really glad that you have. I want to urge you not to come forward and take communion, because I do know that um, as a church, we, we do believe that this meal is for those who believe in Jesus and who are seeking to live their lives under his authority. But if that's not the case for you, I want to encourage you to stay in your seat. And when we come forward to take communion, if you would stay there and consider what your life might look like flourishing. If your life feels like it's withering today, if your life feels like it's just fruitless and um, there's just so many issues that you're facing, instead of coming forward to communion, I want to point you to Jesus. He can make you a new person and cause your life to flourish. So let me pray. You can come forward and take communion when you're ready. Lord, I know the desire for this church is to not just be filled with a lot of activity and just busyness while bearing no fruit. The desire of this church is to follow after Jesus and to have our lives look like the, the, the kind of life we've talked about this morning. We're going to have lives that are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work this into this body. I pray even over this coming new school year and as calendars kind of reset a little bit, that your people's lives might bear much fruit. For those who don't know you, I pray that you would minister during this time and just give them a picture of what their lives could look like under your loving authority. Would you call your lost children home and would you help us now as we participate in communion to remember all that you've done for us? The true grain of wheat who's fallen to the ground and died but didn't remain alone. Because of your death, Jesus, you've borne much fruit and our lives are a result of that. We celebrate that and remember that as we take these elements. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.